Uh, I came in, turned on the lights in here, kind of stood up here for a minute, realizing that uh, this would be the last time I preach among you while serving as a pastor uh, with you. I stood up here, and I just kind of stood. Uh, This is going to take two hours. (laughs) No, it won't, I promise. (laughs) I just stood up here, and I, I wasn't quite sure what to feel. And then, um, you know in those movies where you're sitting, you're, you're seeing something and then somebody's looking back and it's almost like people start to fade in. You know, they fade into the scene. Maybe it's a, it's a grandparent or it's, it's the people that came before them. And, and I stood up here and I'm just kind of looking around. We're creatures of habit, right? So the cattle know which stall to go to. And I'm looking out and I'm just starting to picture people, 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 your faces, your names. I know your name. <laughs> I know your kids. People that were here 10 years ago that are no longer with us. Maybe they've moved on or they've moved on to glory. Uh, new people that God has brought into our midst, people that have come and whose hearts have been hard towards the gospel and they've said no. People who have come and whose hearts have been changed by the gospel and we grow together. And so I stood up here this morning and I just looked out And I just saw people, people who God loves, people who our text today will call the beloved. So um, there's a lot of emotion in today for me, so I'm not quite sure how this goes. Um, But I will say this, my desire as I preach this morning is to preach with love the word of God and a longing to see you, a people that I love, grow and a knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and have the scriptures bear impact on your hearts. And so with that being said, we are going to spend our time in the book of Jude. So I'd ask that you open your Bibles there. It's a really, really short one, and the easiest way to find it, if you're not familiar with it, is to go right to the end of your Bible where you find Revelation and start working backwards. If you hit chapter 1 of Revelation... Go left one more page, and you'll be exactly where you need to be. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's page 1,027. 1,027. It's a small book, easy to miss, but that's where you'll find it this morning. And as is our practice, would you stand with me as we read God's Word this morning? But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
You may be seated as I pray. Father, by your spirit, I pray that you would use your word to equip our minds and impact our hearts today. Might we grow in our love for Christ, our love for the church, and our love for the lost as a result. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. This is a variant on a phrase that the philosopher Jorge Santillana, a Spanish philosopher, famously wrote. He lived a long life, a life that showed how history was in fact repeating itself over and over in terrible ways. His was a life that was marked by a knowledge of war, great war. His life spanned the American Civil War, the Great War, World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. Santiana saw how man got really good at killing one another, right from the cavalry charge to the birth of the atomic bomb. He was a man that knew when differences couldn't be settled with words, they would be settled with weapons of war. And the sad reality, of course, is that this still plays itself out today. Now, history is useful in as much as we pay attention to it. When we we ignore its call for calm and clarity, we end up repeating the exact same mistakes as those who have come before us. Now, we know this to be not only true in areas of war or geopolitics, but also in the church as well. And the church, this collection of self-proclaimed followers of Jesus, is prone to division. As individuals, we all bring our own stuff to the table. We, we know ourselves as much as we can know ourselves. And amidst our own postmodern context, our own way of looking at the world, which of course has been shaped by the way the world has been presented to us, our own convictions around morality, and our varied life experiences. Sociologists like Emile Durkheim, Karl Marx, Max Weber, they give us theories on how to understand these interactions, and from those we deduce how we can be of some use to one another. But of course, historians and sociological theories, they're only profitable if they A, cause us as Christians to rightly understand and rightly believe things about a holy God, and B, cause us to consider the eternal implications of our interactions with others, the two very things that our text this morning drives us towards. But neither the history we are taught or the sociological theories that we are fed do this. The issues we are being warned about in the text this morning, they are spiritual in nature. And so the various socio-psychological movements of the 19th, 20th, and even the 21st century, with pop culture gurus like uh, Dr. Phil or Deepak Chopra, throw Ellen in there, 
you know, they're not going to do us much good. They fall short when it comes to helping us understand the eternal significance of our interactions or the vast holiness of our God. But this is where the book of Jude, while only 25 verses long, cuts out the chatter and appeals to believers to remember the past in a way that will allow them to be aware of what is going on around them. Secure their footing and consider the eternal implications of their interactions with others. The big picture of Jude as a whole is this. Be aware of false teachers and those who refuse to acknowledge God. Find your footing and amidst all of this, care for those around you. Care for those that might have slipped and fallen. Care for those who don't even know they're lost. Those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. And Jude would add these main directives to us, for us this morning. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, in this short work, there are no, there are no soft words in Jude. There are no skirting issues or pulling punches. The heart of Jude is to see believers, us here today, aware of what aims to take our attention, erode our faith, and fracture the family of God. His heart to protect the church is just like a parent who's sending their child out on their own to school for the first time. Remember, Catherine, when you get off the bus this morning, at the end of the day, when you get home, when you get off that bus, remember, I'm not there to meet you. You're going to cross some roads by yourself. Olivia will be there with you. You're going to watch. You're going to look. Make sure there are no cars. If you see a car, look the driver right in the eye. Make sure they've waved you so it's safe to go by. As you cross, make sure there's not a car coming the other way. Your sister's with you. She doesn't always watch us carefully. Hold her hand and cross safely. His heart is for his people. His heart is for the church. And so it is for us today. In fact, if you look to verse 17, you'll notice that it's appealing to believers. Calls us the beloved. Look there at verse 17. The beloved. The apostles had warned the church when it was still in its youth that a time would come when there would be scoffers, people who mocked God's call to holiness and who thought of Christ as, as a cute kitten to be engaged at a whim, rather than the lion of Judah who would one day come to judge in all righteousness. He also warns against those who follow their own ungodly passions and says that they will also be the ones to cause division. Now, not the kind of division that we might think of out of the gate, like we argue about what color we should paint something or what time our service should be or who we should hire. Not that kind of thing. No, the division these people call into the division that these people bring calls into question the very core of Orthodox faith. Whether or not Christ actually rose from the dead whether or not he will return again. And almost always, as characterized by their life, by their ungodly passions, as it's phrased, engage in and look at sin and then say, you know what, it doesn't really matter that much. Jude tells us to have an ear out for such talk and an eye out for such people. 
because he says that even though they may exist among you, they are not of you. For you have been born of the Spirit. And they, look right at verse 19. They are what? Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. These people are not Christians that bring such division. In fact, verses 3, 17, and 20 of Jude all use the same word for us. Calls us beloved. Beloved. It's to get our attention. Why? Because as believers, as the beloved of God, we are to be the opposite of what we hear described and are being warned of. And what is summarized of the people whom Jude says we will encounter as divisive and devoid of the Spirit? In verses 6 to 13, he gives them names. Just allow your eyes to scan the page that Jude falls on. People like Cain and Balaam, Korah, those in Sodom and Gomorrah, those who reject God's word, encourage sensuality and greed, and who despise the authority of God and his revealed word. In fact, look right at verse 12. Look right at verse 12 and how it describes such people and ultimately their fate. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. They are dangers that don't truthfully present themselves. They are waterless clouds. They have no actual value in promoting growth. They are fruitless trees, twice dead, uprooted, waves that are wild, casting up their foam. And it's their own shame. Wandering stars, useless for navigating truth. And this is the terrifying phrase in, way, in how they are mentioned. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I never want to be one of those people. We never want to be those people. Be aware and be warned It is a serious thing to stand in defiance of the living God. But you, beloved, pick it up again in verse 20. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Remember the words of the apostles. Keep history in mind and be aware of what longs to pull you away. Be active, be intentional, contend for the faith, persevere amidst trial and the onslaught of falsehood that will assail you. If you've ever been on a plane before, you know the the pre-flight safety speech that you're given. There's a number of things that you t- they tell you to watch out for or to be aware of. If you're sitting in one of the, uh, the emergency exit aisles, they'll come by and they'll give you a, a, special, a special chat. You'll have a little ex- extra responsibility, but you'll also have a little extra legroom, so it's not that bad. One of the things they tell you, in case of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, an air mask will drop from the ceiling. And this is the important thing. They tell you to secure it on yourself and then be prepared to help others. It's simple enough when you're on an airplane. 
where when trouble presents itself, the solution literally drops out of the ceiling into your lap. It's, it's nice that way. But what about here on the ground? What about the life that we each live that can feel more like a stormy sea where the tides of life and the current of culture is so strong? How are we supposed to help ourselves, let alone others? When the seas of life and doubt and temptation are raging, if ever there was a time when we needed a solution to fall in our laps, that would be it. But it's not the way. No solution falls from the heavens. We're not given that relief from the trial and temptations we face in this world. Why is that? Because heaven's solution has already come. And in Christ, Christ, and by his spirit, we are given all we need to live lives of godliness and devotion. And with that truth on the table, we're told to work intentionally, diligently, and humbly to keep ourselves in the love of God until what, with finality, mercy is afforded us in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does this intentionality, this diligence and humility look like? Look to verse 20 with me, and you'll see it listed. We're given different directives. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love. And finally, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. God's word to us is to keep ourselves in his love and wait for Christ's return. Now, at first hearing and in isolation, keeping ourselves in God's love sounds a lot like maybe we are the sustainers of our own faith. That Christ does his bit, but, but really we're the ones that do the, the bulk of the lifting, which of course doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that if I do X, therefore God must love me. It's not what the scriptures teach. But but take all that we've we've been given and hear it this way instead. You keep yourselves in God's love by praying in the Holy Spirit and building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And we do this by knowing God's word and keeping his commandments. It's a simple theme throughout the New Testament scripture. Know God's word and keep his commandments. Uh, Just listen to what we can assemble from the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John about this alone. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Conversely, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The way we keep ourselves in the love of God is to know God's word and keep his commandments. So while we do not save ourselves, we can't make God love us. 
We are not passive in our salvation, nor are we absent recipients of God's love. In fact, these words are echoed in the first chapter of Peter's second epistle, where he provides us with an actual list of things, specific things that we are to engage in, in keeping God's commandments as we keep ourselves in the love of God. He says this, listen as I read it. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly affection and to brotherly affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters here today, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Keep yourselves in the love of God. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We build ourselves up in our most holy faith by keeping Jesus' commandments. We live under and in the light of His good word and submit ourselves to Him in every respect. And in so doing, we keep ourselves in the love of God. And we do all this with a future hope in mind, don't we? See again at what it says back in verse 21. Look at verse 21 in the back half of that. It says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, the Christian faith is one that is characterized by hope. That is, by definition, that which is something that hasn't yet happened, right? Hope is something we have. We hope something will happen. And so as ones who are saved, we are being kept and we are keeping ourselves in the love of God in anticipation of what? The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Beloved, this is your hope. And just as Christians 2,000 years ago, we too remain with this hope planted firmly before us. It's a hope that acknowledges we are saved, beloved, but our salvation has yet to be fully realized. Think of it like this. Uh, One thing I I do on a regular basis on Saturday nights, like maybe many of you during the hockey season is I turn on CBC and there's hockey night in Canada. They've bumped the games back a little bit. So it makes it a lot easier for my oldest, Catherine, who I mentioned before, to get a little special time with dad each Saturday evening. She's the oldest. And so if you're the oldest, you know that there's always been at some levels a little more asked of you. And so while the younger ones get bathed up and tucked away and stories read and the rest, Catherine gets to stay up. You're the oldest, aren't you? Yep. (laughs) Catherine gets to stay up and just watch the first period with Dad. Get a blanket, cuddle under there, we watch, and we enjoy. Well, last year, someone gave us two tickets to the Leafs game, like real live hockey. I told Catherine, and of course, she was over the moon excited. 
I was just a little bit excited too. Give me that. And so we prepared, we planned, we studied what we were going to do. We had the whole thing set. It was one of the greatest nights I've ever had with her. It was amazing. It was so much fun. So we had possession of these tickets. So we had possession of these tickets. Our faith was that they were real. Our faith was that they were real. Our hope was that when we showed up at the door and we gave them our tickets, they would deem them legitimate and let us in to see the game. And so when we got to the Air Canada Center, all of our anticipation and preparation for the game was there. Our faith was validated and our hope was realized when they led us into the building. You see, as Christians, as one sealed by the Spirit, our hope is that the faith we have in Christ will be realized when we are judged by a holy God. When the end has come and the living and dead are judged alike, that our sin will not be held against us, but in our place, Christ and his righteousness will stand as our substitute. And every accusation against us will fall when the nail-pierced righteousness of Jesus is attributed to us in our frail state. And this is our hope. This is what we look forward to. That Christ is sufficient in all. And so while our action is called for, we can't forget that, that the Godhead is the source of our strength. In fact, if you look at verse 20, the Holy Spirit is mentioned there in verse 20, in whom we are to pray, with the Father and Son in verse 21. And within that, we have this trifecta of, of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love all mentioned Faith and love are explicitly mentioned in verses 20 and 21. And the hope we are called in is couched in that phrase, just waiting on the mercy, waiting on the mercy. Have hope. So for you, beloved, it begins by being aware of what wayward star would look to knock you off course. Securing your footing by building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. Yes, for your good. Yes, for the glory of God. But also for this, so that you can be of help to others. Learn from the past. Secure your air masks and be ready to engage in rescue missions of all sorts. Look to verse 22. It'll describe that for us. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Listen, for some standing on the promises of God, it doesn't feel as secure as it does to you and me. They've had doubts. Maybe they've even given real consideration to the alternatives that the world offers them. They've seen what Christ calls them to, and they think maybe there's just something that's a little bit easier. And whether they feel that in their heart or the things that are deceptively shiny in this world begin to grab their attention, they just find themselves starting to doubt. 
Maybe they're even falling towards that fire. God's word to us is that our response should be to have mercy. Have mercy. When those questions come up for the person who's been a Christian for four months or 40 years, how can I be sure that the Bible's true? Does it really matter today? Listen, there are people teaching all kinds of other things, and they really believe those. How do I know maybe they're not right? Culture says that I can do this with my life, and the church has been wrong before about things. Maybe they're wrong about this. I just don't even know what I believe right now. How do we handle these doubts as a church? How do we love such people? The directive that we're given isn't just for those who are paid. It's just not for the pastoral staff, for the elders of our church. It's for all of us. Have mercy on those who doubt. Paul's words to Timothy in in that epistle are helpful here. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, he gives instruction that has broad application for all of us, all of us who are the beloved. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, correcting with all gentleness. So don't be harsh. Don't be demeaning. With those who doubt, with those who have stumbled, and those who find themselves amidst the flames, don't assume that heresy is the person's end game, that that's what they actually desire. Be patient, be loving, be helpful. Provide sound biblical instruction. Have mercy. And so we're called to have mercy. But we're also called to fear and hate. Two things that you don't often hear Christians called to do. To fear and to hate. What should we fear and what should we hate? To be honest, our our text is a little bit unclear in this. It doesn't give us that one example where we can just point to and say, aha, that's exactly it. So I think the best thing for us to do is to take Jude as a whole and deduce our directives from that. Should we fear those we are trying to save? Should we fear being tempted ourselves by what they are involved in? Should we fear that others that we know might follow them in their pursuit of the things other than what which God has directed? Should our fear of God, a right and holy judge, grow in light of the defiance we are seeing before us, the stumbling we see, the doubt we know exists? The answer is yes to all of those things. We should fear all of those things, but none of those things are good enough reasons for us to ignore the perishing around us, to not get involved, to say, that's not my problem. So what are we to hate? Our text tells us that we should, look there, hate the very garment that is stained by the flesh. If the people Jude is describing are the ones repenting, what must we hate? What must we hate when we see this? We must hate all of the things that are related to anything other than and less than full repentance. 
a complete reversal of lifestyle and a change of attitude toward their past. For their sake, in saving them, we cannot afford to demand and claim that Scripture demands anything less. In addition to God's wrath, their former lifestyle and attitude and understanding about God and His character and His holiness are what the gospel is saving them from. And we cannot lower the standard in a hope that if we do, that maybe more people will repent. No, that is to love the garment and hate the sinner. Instead, we are called to love the ones who are caught and hate the sin that longs to destroy them. Now, I believe that all these rescue missions that are stated in Jude, they're they're talking about those who are in the church. Believers, the beloved, who make up our congregation, who are up against the world, the weight of doubt, their own flesh and the devil, and all that's bearing down on them. But I think our concern must also extend to those in our community who are not Christians and who wouldn't claim to be, but who don't even know that they're lost. In 2010, I, I, I woke up one morning. The Georgetown Independent was still uh, delivered earlier, uh, earlier in the week. There was two papers at the time, and the I think it was the Friday one. The later one in the week was the one you really wanted to read because it had uh, all of the flyers in it, right? So you would know where to do your grocery shopping. And I remember getting up and going to look at the, at the newspaper. And on the front, there was a bold headline. And it said, 15,000 people moving to Georgetown. At the time, Georgetown was about 30,000 people. It said, in the year 2015, a wave would come where 15,000 new people would come. Now, at the time, that meant if we stayed static, we'd be growing by 50% as a community in just five years between the years 2015 and the years 2020. Some of you are now, you're some of that growth that they predicted. I remember seeing that, and I remember showing Barb, and I remember being really excited. I was excited because there were 15,000 new people who were going to move into our backyard who most likely didn't know who Jesus was. And I knew this church, and I knew it was here, and I knew the people, the people that I said, I stood here, and I pictured their faces, and I heard their voices, and I knew their heart for Christ. And it excited me. 15,000 new people with whom to share the gospel. And they're coming to us. Yeah, some of these people would openly reject Christ and want nothing to do with the gospel. Others would deny that God exists or reject the notion that they are in need of saving. But from my interactions, from our family's interactions with people in this community over the last 10 years, I would argue that most people just don't have a clue. They don't have a clear, logically consistent position on things of faith, let alone whether or not they think they're going to heaven or hell and why that might be the case or not. And so I think the heart of our text, of that rescue mission, extends to these people as well. 
Because like the ones whose garments we hate because they've been so encapsulated by sin, these people are in a worse off place because they don't even know they're in danger. They don't even know they're standing on a set of tracks, let alone that a train's coming. And so we care about these people who don't know what they don't know or have been sold on what the world is selling because we are called to be a people who show mercy and save others from the impending flames. At my count today, there are over 40,000 people who live in Georgetown that we know do not attend any church or a church where the gospel is proclaimed. These people would not call Christ their Lord. They are our neighbors, our co-workers. They are our children's teachers and the people who run the stores that we shop at. They are the cashiers at Superstore and the people that put those annoying little door hanger thingies for the karate bus. You get those all the time. It's that guy. They're the grandmothers and grandfathers those who are living alone and those who are living with special needs, those we see at the gym and those we see on Facebook. It's 10 at Yang's Chinese Food on Main Street who burns incense to Buddha. It's Al-Hadin who runs the Hasty Market across from Christ the King who attends a mosque in Mississauga. It's my neighbor Ken who's lived here for 45 years. It's the parents who send us their kids to MAC, to VBS and our youth programs. They're the Spanish migrant workers and the souls that fill our gym each month for our seniors' luncheon. They are the moms that come to giggles and the people you see on the GO train. They are the 40,000 souls that live within five minutes of this place where we are right now who are lost. And the reality is while most of them have heard the name of Jesus because we still have Christmas and Easter and there's a whole bunch of people who know how to swear. They don't know the Jesus of the scriptures. And the younger they are, the younger they are, the less likely they know the Jesus of the scriptures. Take college age and below. They don't know the Jesus in the scriptures. And almost without exception, they could not explain the gospel to you. The call to us in keeping ourselves in God's love is an active one with epic and eternal implications. And so as we keep ourselves in the love of God, as we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. God calls us to be merciful and to pull others from the flames because that's exactly what he did for us. When he sent Christ to die in our place, an arm was extended to us. We needed to be snatched from the fire. And when he did that, he said, if you will place your hope in me, if you will trust that my death is sufficient for your sin and wait for the mercy that leads to eternal life, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The fire is real, so pull people from the flames. 
And what we know of Jude, the man, is this. As the brother of Jesus, he was not always a believer. He didn't start out understanding who Jesus was, but at some point, maybe even after Christ's death and resurrection, he got it. And the final directives this man gives us, as prompted by the Holy Spirit, this man who shared his youthful heir with the Son of Man, they're these. Remember the words of the apostles. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Build yourselves. Build up one another in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Show mercy with fear, hating all forms of sin. And in doing so together, we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we are your beloved. By your Holy Spirit, keep us from division and the falsehood from which it comes and the worldliness which follows. And as you have mercy on us, move our hearts that we might have mercy on those who doubt and are stumbling. Bring assurance, O God, to all those who doubt and conviction to all who have yet to believe. Use us, use this church, God, use Maple Avenue Baptist Church as an instrument of your humble grace for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.